Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Just wanted to remind you guys that every Sunday night after each episode of Big Little Lies, the Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes break down everything we just saw in our new after show called Big Little Live in partnership with Buick. And after you check that out, make sure to subscribe to the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny, a weekly NFL podcast with frequent contributions from her beloved dog and sidekick named Lenny. You can subscribe to the Mina Kimes show with Lenny on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to watch Big Little Live every Sunday night on Twitter. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by a flu game-esque Kevin Clark. How you doing, buddy? Well, I just got back from Mexico City. It's an amazing place. Uh, I'm quite sick. And if I have any bad takes here, it is because of that. So we are doing the next show in our kind of big picture series. We're doing this offseason. We're going to do a deep dive into player contracts yeah. with Joel Corey of CBS, who I know we both revere in terms of his knowledge. It's a really interesting conversation. That'll be coming a little bit later, but before we do that, we're going to talk about the news of the day, which just broke while we were on this podcast, and that is that the Patriots have reportedly filed tampering charges against the Texans for their pursuit of Nick Casario, according to Adam Schefter of ESPN. I gotta tell you, um, it's just the Patriots making sure everyone follows the rules. And and they've been following the rules for a long time now. Um, they never have any uh, public problems with following the rules. And I'm just glad that they're holding other teams to a standard of not, of not breaking the rules. I'm sorry. I don't see anything wrong with this. So I'm confused about what this could mean because it's okay. been an open secret for the, I don't know how long, essentially since Brian Gain was fired, that the Texans wanted to hire Nick Casario. Right. So... What does this tampering mean? Is this a Jack Easterby yeah. and Nick Casario talking at the ring ceremony deal? Is this a Bill Bryan shooting off texts? Like, what does this actually entail <sighs> and what could they get in trouble for? Because we all know this is happening and it always happens. It, it always happens. So there's a couple of dueling reports here um, that all seem to drive together. So Schefter reports to start this that there is uh, a tampering investigation being opened okay, uh, by the NFL. And then Ian Rappaport says the Texans firing Brian Gain the night after the Patriots ring ceremony set off some alarm bells. Ooh. Okay. Oh, I like this. The palace intrigue is great. I'm so into this. All right. Connect the dots for me. Okay. So I, I, I don't actually know. To be honest with you, I, I I don't know what the connection is. Bill O'Brien would not have been at the Patriots ring ceremony. I mean, obviously, Bill O'Brien worked in New England. He was the offensive coordinator there. Um, he he obviously has a lot of friends in that building. There are a lot of Patriot people who have made their way to Houston in the past. Um, I Again, I'm with you. I mean, you think about, okay, so Mike McCagnan gets fired, and immediately we basically know that Joe Douglas is the top candidate. In fact, there were reports that Joe Douglas was maybe tied there before the firing of McCagden. So this sort of, I wouldn't call it tampering, but backdoor communication seems to happen all the time. So we talked about this a little bit when we were discussing just what teams should be looking for. Nick Casario's name came up. I think we both talked about how he's not super motivated to leave New England because it's a really good job. And, And that's one of the things, I'm writing about this for tomorrow, just kind of the diminishing appeal in some ways of general manager jobs throughout the league. And one of the reasons for that is that we have these coaches that have so much more power than they did probably five, 10 years ago, especially these coaches that are the offensive play callers. It seems like, you know, the Sean Payton's, the Andy Reid's, those guys have a say in personnel and they can wield some of that power. And Houston now becomes that situation because if 
Casero had gone Wait, in there. He knows on, I would much rather have Andy Reid or, I mean, in, you know, Les Snead is obviously a very powerful GM, but someone like Sean McVay, I'd rather have a good coach have all that power than give all the power to Bill O'Brien for some reason. Well, whether Bill O'Brien deserves it or not is an entirely different conversation, but he seems to have it. And I just think that if you're looking at jobs that have come open or jobs that could come open in the near future with NFL GMs, a lot of them have the same drawbacks. Because when we used to think about GM jobs in the past, I think that the number one factor of whether you want to take a GM job is, do you have a quarterback? Do you, is yep. that position settled? Now we've come to a point in the league where so many teams are settled at that position, or at least they have a plan there. So now there are different factors that kind of determine whether these jobs are good or bad. And I think that whether you have a coach in place that has a certain modicum of power is one of those factors you have to consider. And that's true with the Jets that just happened with Joe Douglas. It's true with what's going to happen with whoever takes the job in Houston. And I think the most logical next job to come open, GM-wise, is probably either in Arizona or Tampa Bay. And both of those teams have first-year head coaches that are most likely going to be there next year. So you have teams that are, are, you have GMs that in their first season, if they take over next year, won't get to pick their head coach. So it just seems like there aren't that many cushy jobs right now. So if you're Casario, I don't know if there ever will be a perfect job as the league currently exists. So the fact that well, he didn't take that Houston job is interesting to me. Well, I mean, he hasn't, they haven't hired anybody. So it's possible. I, I want to delve into another report here. This is from Mike Florio. Evidence of potential tampering come from photos, videos, and other proof of interactions between Texans exec Jack Easterby, who, uh, as we know from reports over the past couple of days, has become more of a force inside Houston. Um, he obviously was the, the Patriots character coach, I guess was mm-hmm. his, his phrase. Uh, between Jack Easterby and Casario at last Thursday's Patriots ring ceremony which happened the night before Houston, the Houston GM job became vacant. So the, the suggestion there is that Jack Easterby and Nick Casario had a, had a talk. Uh, maybe Casario said he was looking for a change. Remember, Houston um, was blocked from Casario um, last year when Gain was hired because their season was still ongoing, and you can do that then. And so I guess that suggestion is that they had an interaction and that the Patriots did not enjoy that. So if you're Houston and you assumed that if you fired Gain, you were just going to get Nick Casario, you got to be sitting there right now and not being very thrilled. I mean, even if Bill O'Brien well, yeah. relationship had deteriorated to the point where he didn't want him there anymore and it had nothing to do with Casario, it still feels like the timing is strange. Brian Gain did not do a bad job. I feel like he had very limited resources when he took that job over. A well, lack of had, draft picks. He essentially had 12 months. Yeah, and, and a lack of draft picks. I mean, there yeah. weren't that many picks, and I think they did a pretty good job in kind of filling out that roster with what they had. You, you could say they didn't chase offensive line talent enough, but we've seen what it's like to overpay for offensive linemen in free agency. It's never a good idea. You know, just because you lost out on the Nate Solder sweepstakes last spring, is that the worst thing in the world? I don't know if it is. So I think objectively, Brian Gain did a fine job. So you just fired a GM who did a decent job after a year in that position, and now you don't have an answer if Casario can't come. And I think that that is a concern. So obviously, they do try to address the offensive line in the draft, and some of the sort of Twitter chatter was that maybe that those guys, guys like Titus Howard, who was seen as a reach, maybe those guys didn't look so good um, in 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 workouts over the past couple of weeks. That That's certainly possible. I think the scariest outcome for the Texans fans is, number one, is that their attempts to address the offensive line have been an unqualified disaster. And number two, that there is no plan here to get a guy like Casario. Um, you know, I think beyond that, 
we've seen how much leverage a guy like Casario gets. It's not like Jack Easterby was going to negotiate terms. This happened with Joe Douglas. I don't know if you saw the, the Manish Meta report, Robert, but Joe Douglas essentially doubled the years in money because he knew he was the favorite. And yeah. Casario could have just said, cool, give me give me $4 million a year and a five-year contract. And he could have basically held that team ransom. So I think that when you're firing a guy in, in, in midstream like this and you don't have a plan, remember, think about this, okay? The Panthers fired Dave Gettleman kind of midstream, and they brought in the old GM, Marty Herney. That's fine. That, that, that plan was obviously, uh, you know, he wasn't employed by a team. Everything was fine. The Kansas City Chiefs just promoted Veach. It's not like they had to go out and poach a guy. If you're poaching at this time of year, you're going to have to pay up. And I think that unless you have it all really nailed down, and that includes, by the way, a lot of tampering, it's a really uphill battle to get a guy like Nick Casario on June 11th or 12th, whatever today is. Especially because, I mean, this is the second power struggle that Bill O'Brien has won in the past two years, less than two years. And if you're somebody that is a prospective GM, is that a place you want to wind up? Again, with a coach that has not necessarily been that successful, but seems to wield the same amount of power as the league's most successful coaches? I'm with you. And the plan around Deshaun Watson has has me scratching my head. Um, it bordered on football malpractice at times last year. Uh, obviously, we know that he had to ride a bus at one point because he couldn't fly commercial. And a lot of people I want to address this real quick. A lot of Texans fans were like, you should stop bringing that up because it was early in the season and then things got better. Uh, I have a rule. And the rule is if you're, if your quarterback can't fly commercial or sorry, can't fly in an airplane, uh, then I should bring it up all the time. Yeah. Bruised lungs deserve mention constantly. I think that's a good podcast rule. Yeah. If you can't get on an airplane, I'm going to bring it up. All right, before we get to Joel, who we'll be discussing the Carson Wentz contract with, by the way, I know that's kind of the biggest news, but we want to talk to someone smarter than us about that deal. So I, I, I want to say real quick before we get into it, because we're going to get in with Joel and he's, he's obviously a lot smarter than us in everything, not just, not just contracts and everything, <laughs> but I do think it's fascinating because Howie Roseman made his bones in this, in this league as a salary cap expert and to have a mega contract negotiated by him is really interesting to me. I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from that. Um, and sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so that we, there are a ton of lessons. It's a fascinating contract. It's really complex. So we'll talk with Joel about that. But one more piece of news we do want to hit is that, much to my delight, the not the Detroit Lions, the Oakland Raiders will be the Hard Knocks team this year, which I... This is just excellent. It's excellent news. I could not be more excited to watch it. It's everything we could possibly want from a Hard Knocks team. It's amazing. And there's a couple things we get to find out. There's been a tension in my mind between what John Gruden says and what he does. Yeah. And okay, he's saying, is it data or data? He's saying, I hate analytics, which I don't even think is true. He's saying, we're going to bring back 1998. All these things are obviously two years old, but he's said some wild things uh, over the past two years. Or the, excuse me, the past, yeah, 2018 and 2019. And now we get to see how he actually operates in his office. What is he telling players? What is he telling his coaching staff? That to me is going to be the biggest a uh, piece of evidence. It'll be a Rosetta Stone for the John Gruden era. Just sort of unfettered access to his players, his conversations, and how that organization is run. You can hide behind press conferences and say crazy things. And we can say, oh, that's just Gruden being Gruden. But now we get to find out what actually happens behind closed doors and if John Gruden is the coach we think he is in 2019. It's the best possible outcome. If it had been the Lions, I don't know what I would have done. As an ardent Hawks, Hard Knocks fan, 
I know what I would have done. I would have not watched Hard Knocks. I would have watched it just out of curiosity. We had a conversation in the office a couple weeks ago, and I wrote something kind of connected to it about the teams that are just kind of sputtering and spinning in their wheels. But the Lions are probably the most boring team in the league. Like, there is nothing particularly intriguing about the Detroit Lions. And if I had to watch what is an incredible piece of documentary filmmaking every single year about that team, it, it just would have been so, so tedious. But now so, we get the exact opposite of that. What about Matthew Stafford's chugging, which I found to be quite thrilling? I mean, that was fun, and that's a good thing. But, I mean, Matthew Stafford is not a particularly interesting person, nor a particularly exciting one. He is I mean, he is Matthew Stafford is kind of like... You know, there's a certain baseline of NFL quarterbacking where it's like Matthew Stafford, Andy Dalton, that group of guys, and they are what they are, and there's not much to be said about them at this point. How what, what, if you had to name just Matthew Stafford facts, just outside of his play and his sort of career biography, what besides him being high school and, and youth ball friends with Clayton Kershaw could That's you? That's the identify? only thing I know about him. He went to Georgia. Yeah, yeah, he was the number one That's overall pick biography. in the draft. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's it. That's what I that's, that's what I have about Matthew Stafford. Uh, I met a guy one time in Argentina who was his uh, high school receiver. He gave me a whole breakdown. It was so weird. It was the weirdest thing I've ever been to. I was at a party and the guy was like, I was his high school receiver. You were at a party in Argentina? Yeah, I w- it was very strange. And the guy was like, I played wide receiver for Matthew Stafford. He gave me a full, a full scouting report. How did you end up at a party in Argentina? I don't know. Why was I in Mexico City the other day? That was a travel, vacation with your around. wife. <laughs> yeah, my wife was at this thing. My oh, okay. wife was at this thing. We All have right. a friend in Argentina, and she invited okay. us to this thing. You have yeah. a friend in Argentina. That makes yes. sense. Yes. Ending up at a random yes. party in a city or in a no, country no, where no, you no, no, live no. is a little different. No, no, no. My, it was my wife's friend has, is, lived in Argentina, and she took us, and it was all a bunch of American expats. I was wondering. I was concerned if this was like a never go with a hippie to a second location sort of situation. No, but, no, no, but, no. All right. All right. That makes no. more sense. All, all above board. Uh, before we continue with Joel, let's take a quick break. Father's Day is around the corner, and a subscription to Golf Digest Schools is the perfect gift. With more than 350 video lessons on every part of the game, featuring golf's leading teachers, from Butch Harmon to David Ledbetter to Michael Breed, it's like having the best minds in golf at your disposal wherever you are, on your phone, laptop, or TV screen. With Golf Digest Schools, you can send a video of your swing to be analyzed by a Golf Digest-ranked teacher, or follow their fitness programs to help you get in your best golf shape. These are not just quick tips that you can find on YouTube. From power to putting, from baking 100 to breaking par, no video program gives you more opportunities to take your golf game to the next level, just as if you were working with a pro. To sign up for Golf Digest Schools or to give it as a last-minute Father's Day gift, go to golfdigest.com slash access and use promo code NFL to get 30% off an annual subscription. That's golfdigest.com slash access and use promo code NFL for 30% off today. We welcome in former player agent, current salary cap expert. He writes columns for CBS Sports, and I think he's one of the smartest people on player contracts and team building, Joel Corey. Joel, let's start out with the topic contract-wise that everyone's talking about today. I feel like I have to have a graduate degree to understand Carson Wentz's contract. I feel like I understand the salary cap. I feel like I, I am on top of this and I understand most player contracts, but Howie Roseman, who is, it was basically made his bones, a salary cap, salary cap expert finally gets a quarterback mega deal here. Is there something that sticks out to you about this deal that makes this better than most mega deal contracts? And when you look at the structure, what, what, what just jumps out uh, for first thing? Uh, it's more complicated than most contracts there's something called the 30 percent rule which comes into play 
um, which limits your salary increases from the last year in the CBA um, on a go-forward basis to 30% of that year. Um, so it's structured in a way where they can kind of circumvent the 30% rule, kind of like the old contracts on the rookie system would circumvent the 25% rule where you'd have these huge salary escalators or incentives, which were based on doing next to nothing to increase salaries. So you've got these escalators in Wentz's like 2021, 22 and 23 years where basically if he does more than what he did the year before um, in any of those years, it's going to trigger an increase in those salaries. That's one thing which makes this deal a little unique compared to other ones. There's been some misconceptions floating around about what this $30 million option bonus means in his contract that is due next year. Um, first, it's to exercise the 2024 contract year. That's not that unusual to see something like that in a contract. Several teams use that structure. Um, but there's a mechanism to ensure that they're going to exercise the option. Um, right now, Wentz's 2020 base salary is $31.383 million, and it's fully guaranteed. And if you figured out his cap number, it's a shade over $42.65 million for next year. They're not going to carry him at that. Plus, if you don't exercise the option, you don't get the last year of the contract. So there's no way they don't exercise the option. And when you exercise the option, it's $30 million. It reduces the base salary down to $1.383 million. You can prorate the signing bonus on a go-forward basis from 20 through 24, so it's going to count on the cap, which is 30 divided by 5, 6 million for each of those years. So this is not the run-of-the-mill typical contract. There's $16 million in escalators in the contract, which takes the max value to 40, $144 million, as opposed to $128 million. And they're based on what Wentz does individually and what the team does in terms of uh, their their performance. He and, it's a graduated amount depending upon the number of bowls, um, MVPs, and offense play of the year awards. And also there's another component, which is based on how many times um, Philadelphia wins the Super Bowl. So getting the max value isn't going to be that easy. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me. I saw a list the other day. I think Field Yates put it out of the veterans in Philadelphia now signed through for at least three more seasons. That includes Wentz, Ertz, Cox, Kelsey, Lane Johnson, Brandon Graham, Alshon Jeffrey. This is a team that won the Super Bowl with no one really being over, I think, 8% of the cap, something like that, and certainly Carson Wentz wasn't. Um, is this team kind of going, going to have to go forward with this core or with the rising cap? Is there going to be more flexibility than we think? Is there a complication with the lockout coming in a couple of years? What is the future of just the Eagles team building uh, because of the deals they have in place now, including Carson Wentz? Howie Roseman is doing something which differs from his predecessor and former boss, uh, Joe Banner. Joe, for the most part, would leave contracts alone, mm-hmm. restructure them um, unless necessary. Howie's playing the Dallas, New Orleans, Pittsburgh, kick the can the road game, gets cap room today, worries about it tomorrow. That's all well and good, provided the cap keeps going up. Um, it's a pretty safe bet to make because you're going to have new TV deals coming into play. And I have never seen a situation where rights fees have gone backwards as opposed to forward. No. Uh, the question will be, how do they get phased in 
with the new CBA. Um, this CBA phased them in gradually, unlike the NBA CBA, where it was all dumped into one year, where you had that huge mm. spike, and then it's leveled off. That's what used to happen um, with the NFL whenever there was uh, new TV money. Um, but you can outrun, to a degree, kicking the can down the road, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a pretty healthy cap increase each year, one thing it doesn't account for is there's some sort of variable in the equation you don't expect. Like for Dallas, they restructured Tony Romo's contract twice, thinking that he's gonna be there for the long haul. Back injury, Dak Prescott comes into play. All of a sudden, you've got a ton of dead money is almost twenty million associated with uh, Romo's contract. Once you release them, that's and by dead money. I mean, for people who don't know, that's a salary cap charge for someone no longer on the roster. And then Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. it probably wasn't in their wildest dreams that they're going to be trading Antonio Brown when they right. earned almost thirteen million dollars into signing bonus in two thousand eighteen. So when they trade him, they have a cap charge of slightly over twenty one million for him. So that's where you really get into trouble, kicking the can down the road. First, you got to pick the right guys to kick the can down the road with that you know will be there for the long haul. And then if for some unforeseen reason you have to release someone, it does potentially create a cap headache. Yeah. So that's what, with Wentz right now, that's the problem with converting that $30 million into that bonus, correct? Because then you're looking at well, you whatever's guaranteed. To to- you, you, can't, you can't carry him at almost $43 million next year. That's probably not going to be feasible. This is a team that was roughly twenty million over the cap um, going into this offseason. How he had to use his cap magic to get under the cap and then create room. So you're gonna have to um, pick up the option and, and convert it. The thing is, doing the deal two years early, you get a better way to manage the cap on a go for basis. This particular deal because you're going to be allocating over these two years some of the money, which would be new money, backwards to the existing contract. So you're going to have lower cap numbers than you would have otherwise if you waited. So that's one of the benefits for doing an extension two years early because you get to plan the numbers better. We haven't seen a cap number at $43 million. We did see last year San Francisco do something unusual, stick a huge roster bonus in first year Jimmy Garoppolo's contract because they had so much cap room, they wanted to eat some of it up and lower the cap numbers in the future years. But I haven't seen a cap number be carried at more than $37 million. So that's why they're definitely going to exercise the option. Plus, they want the 2024 year, and you don't have the 2024 year if you don't exercise the option. So it's really there from the agent standpoint to ensure that they exercise the option. That's what it's really there for. <laughs> It's interesting to me, Joel, because a lot of the smartest teams in the NFL over the past couple of months or year uh, have signed their quarterback to a mega extension. The Seahawks are always ahead of the curve. The Eagles now, knowing kind of the lessons of the last few months, I guess you could say, what do the Cowboys do with Dak as from a creative standpoint? Is there anything they can do you think that will alleviate that huge hit, especially when they have all those other guys to pay? Is there a path forward for the Cowboys, I guess, is the question. Yeah, the Cowboys' path forward is when in doubt, restructure Tyron Smith's contract. <laughs> That's their passport. They haven't done it yet, but typically they, they size, particularly their first round picks to five, six, seven year deals. I mean, extension. So you have the extra year or two 
where there's no proration. And then when you restructure the contract, years that had no proration now have a little bit of proration. Um, Dallas doesn't do anything really creative. I would imagine he's getting a bigger signing bonus than uh, DeMarcus Lawrence. The question is going to be if he beats Wentz, does he come under Wentz? Um, Dallas missed the window of opportunity to potentially get him for under $30 million per year, in my, in my opinion. If you wanted to do that, you should have been aware of the fact that Philadelphia is like you in the fact that they do first-round picks earlier than most teams, so it could have been a possibility that if not Wentz, it could have been Jared Goff because the Rams also do deals really early. And one of the biggest mistakes they made was Tavon Austin, which I still to this day don't understand why you'd let extend him, let alone pick up the option here, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, so if you wanted to get Dak at a cheaper price, that day is gone. Todd Francis, the agent, Todd Francis is going to drive a hard bargain. He's one of a, um, Aaron, not Aaron, um, Aaron Donald's um, mm. representatives. So good luck with that. And Jerry's also done some things which uh, made me scratch my head from the standpoint that anytime you had a team when I was an agent say something overly flattering about a client, I either taped it or I printed it out and I called it my version of the uh, Miranda. Did anything you say <laughs> positive about my client can and will be used against you when the negotiation starts. For some reason, middle of last year before they're playing Atlanta, Jerry um, unsolicitedly says, if I had, you know, I wouldn't trade Dak Prescott for two first-round picks, including the first overall pick in the 2019 NFL draft. Todd Francis is probably thinking, thank you. Now, all you've done by saying that is, well, what's two first-round picks? Hmm, that's the compensation for an unmatched offer sheet for a non-exclusive franchise player. So automatically, Todd Francis is going, starting point for discussions is the franchise tag numbers. And that's going to be $27 million for Dak. And then you franchise him again, you're like at 32. So you're automatically putting a, a neighborhood in 30 million per year by just that one simple statement. So Terry sometimes says things where I'm like, do you realize what you just did by doing that? And Hey, that's kind of where we are. That even before, Wentz, we're probably going to be looking at 30. Now it's just, is he over or under? I personally think it comes in between Matt Ryan's 30 million per year and Wentz's 32. Because don't forget, Wentz, when he's healthy, was an MVP candidate. Has anyone ever said at any point during Dak Prescott's three seasons, he's in the running to be MVP? So the ceiling for Wentz, what we've seen so far, and it was borne out by where they were drafted and how they played is much higher for Wentz than there is Prescott. So that's, that interests me so much because I feel like there was a spot maybe, you know, five years ago or so where there were those mid-tier quarterback contracts that kind of had those trap doors in them. I think about Andy Dalton's deal, Colin Kaepernick's deal. And it seems like those have kind of gone by the wayside. And if we're talking about Dak as a guy who's in that second tier, you'd figure that maybe that sort of deal is more fitting for a guy like him. Do you just not think we'll see those types of contracts anymore? Are we just in the era of the 30 million or bust quarterback if they get extended? 
Uh, most likely. You've kind of seen the closest thing to that was Nick Foles didn't get anywhere near that neighborhood. He's at 88 over four, which maxes out at 102, when he's really a two-year deal because they they can exit after two years. Alex Smith last year, a great structure for him because of the way the guarantees vest early, was 92 over, uh, I think 94 over four, 23 and a half million in Maxed out like at 105, I believe. Um, if he hit the performance bonuses, he won't. That's now what's considered your middle tier. <laughs> I don't think you're going to see anything like the Andy Dalton contracts. And <laughs> something which really caught my attention earlier this year was one of the Browns, I forget which one, came out and said, we won't be extending Andy Dalton's contract this year. He's got two years left. And I'm like, really? Uh <laughs> I don't think anyone thought that Andy Dalton was a, was a candidate for a contract extension. I think the <laughs> consensus would have been he's more of a candidate to be released than for you to uh, re-up him. So if, if that's the mindset in Cincinnati, I'm like, hey, that's why you have problems. I would have loved to have seen Andy Dalton's reaction if they sat down and offered him an extension. He's like, what, me? Are you sure? <laughs> I would sign it before they changed their mind. Not that these contracts are worth the paper they're printed on, because they're not fully guaranteed, but... Uh, I would, in my mind, say, when and where? <laughs> so, Joel, uh, we, we talked about it a little bit in regard to the Eagles and the Wentz contract. You said the Cowboys don't do anything that's all that creative. When you're looking at just sort of the teams around the league that do kind of the smartest, most innovative stuff with contracts to give themselves flexibility, are there franchises that maybe don't come to mind for us that you look at just their backlog and their track record and say, they're just really smart at knowing how to do this? Well, first of all, nobody does anything overly creative because teams try at all costs to avoid setting a new contractual precedent, even though to me, you should be able to distinguish one situation from another, their blanket responses. If we do it for you, then it's going to open the floodgates for everybody coming and asking for the same thing. But there's a difference between, we'll say, your Tom Brady, if he's ever going to try to assert and get the highest paid contract like he used to getting something unique as opposed to one of those replaceable fungible defensive players that uh, Belichick brings in every year on a rotating basis, but teams don't really operate that way. The team, which to me does the best job from a contractual standpoint and doing a great job contractually doesn't necessarily translate into success on the field. The San Francisco 49ers, they have the most team-friendly contracts in the league. Um, I've told Brian Cap uh, Hampton, who's their, um, who does the day-to-day management of the cap, that if I was still an agent and I had a free agent, I would never send him to you because I don't like how you do your contracts, which to me is the best compliment I can give someone because you're supposed to do stuff an agent doesn't like. But this team has the latest testing date for guarantees in the league. It's April 1st. Everyone else is typically first, third day of the league year. And by that, I mean the injury guarantees turn to full guarantees, and that's in future mm-hmm. years. They don't guarantee anything it's signing past the first year. And they have these huge per-game roster bonuses and contracts, which were the bane of my existence as an agent. Um, Tom Kaepernick had $2 million in annual per-game roster bonuses in his contract. There's one year that, I don't know, he missed about half the season. So, that was basically every game you're not on the 46-man active roster. You don't get that money. So he lost, I think, close to a million dollars 
that season because of the amount of per-game roster bonuses. So San Francisco is head and shoulders uh, above the crowd in protecting themselves contractually. Because how they were able to get D Ford this year to sign for $17 million a year when Frank Clark is over 20, Trey Flowers is at 18, and Demarcus Lawrence is 21-plus, uh, I don't get that one. <laughs> in terms of quarterback pressures last year, and by pressures I mean combined hits, hurries, and sacks, D Ford had more than any of these guys. So the fact that they were able to get him at that amount, and there's fewer guarantees in the contract than these other guys, they're doing their job. So I have to give them a lot of credit. There are three teams which are very inflexible contractually, which is great for them. Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Green Bay. They don't have anything guaranteed in the contract at all after the first year, except Green Bay treats Aaron Rodgers like it's a conventional contract where you have uh, base salary contract guarantees. Cincinnati does not make an exception for anybody. Uh, Pittsburgh has injury guarantees for Roethlisberger um, for his base salaries, but no no way for him to come fully guaranteed. Now, what they do is they'll give you a bigger signing bonus, and they'll stick a first, third, fifth day of the league year roster bonus in year two or in year three, which is supposed to substitute for the lack of guarantees. But if they want to, they can still get rid of you before the roster bonus is due, so you are exposed a little bit. And one more guy, I love what he does, that I dealt with when I was an agent. Rob Brzezinski in Minnesota is yeah. excellent mm. at his job. So, except for the Kirk Cousins contract, which is fully guaranteed, nobody else, anytime they do a contract extension or deal, has money fully guaranteed at signing after the first year. Signing bonuses are kept pretty modestly. So he has maximum flexibility to get out of deals. And what he did with uh, Daniel Hunter is almost criminal because uh, that guy, <laughs> 24-year-old pass rusher going to your contract year, he, all you have to do is do what you did the year before and they're going to they're gonna have to franchise you. He signs for less than $14.5 million per year. There are escalators of a million dollars per year that he could earn. But still, any competent agent should have been able to see that once you had that the $20 million per year pass rusher was on the horizon because any idiot should have known that if Aaron Donald was doing a deal, it was going to be over 20 million per year. And if Khalil Mack was doing a deal, same thing. And once you got those two in that club, somebody else was going to join it. And you've had two other guys join it so far. And uh, Frank Clark and Demarcus Lawrence. Hunter is at 14 and a half million per year. And went out and had a great year. So he is, and he and he gave up five new years. If you're going to do that, do a bridge deal where you give up two, three new years. Because the idea is to get as many bites of the apple in your prime, and not rely on the team's good graces to correct a deal which is so out of whack with the marketplace. Which is what they've had to do with Adam Thielen, which is another mm-hmm. great contract that Brzezinski did, but. I will be surprised if Daniel Hunter at some point isn't a holdout candidate where he goes, wait a minute, Joey Bosa's at $25 million. Um, Miles Garrett's in that neighborhood. I'm at 14. I'm producing like they, am, like they are. Whoa, we got a problem here. <laughs> so yeah. 
Rob Rosinski is just great at his job. Hey, Joel, you know, we're, we're two years out now from a potential lockout, and I can't believe it's been 10 years since 2011 CBA was, was, uh, was struck and, and, uh, time marches on and we'll be dead soon. However, um, I would like to address, and obviously there were so many huge changes in the 2011 CBA. The rookie cap changed the way the the teams are built. I don't think that's an overstatement. Um, veterans in a lot of ways got screwed for the first five, six years of that deal. It started to become a little more normalized last couple of years, but it was a tough time to be 29 or 30 in the NFL during this CBA. When you look at the different types of contracts or types of things that will be addressed, maybe that no one's talking about right now, what do you see happening going forward with sort of the way uh, from, from a team building standpoint, uh, contracts are looked at in this CBA going forward for the, for the 2020s? Well, I think it's going to be status quo. I don't think the uh, players are going to get any significant gains out of the new CBA. One thing that people always talk about is we need to boss the franchise tag. Hell's going to freeze over before that happens. <laughs> that's, going, that's, that's going to be in the next seven CBAs. You're not getting rid of that. Um, so players can hope to try to get marijuana, marijuana relaxed in terms of uh, discipline for that. I wouldn't make Goodell's commissioner disciplined some sort of major uh, point that you need to have uh, won. That's only playing in the owner's hands. You really need to focus on increasing your your share of the pie. You're basically 47%. I don't think you get over 50. Maybe you get to 49 as the baseline. And making sure gambling revenue is included in that pie try to increase the amount you get from the TV money, maybe roll back the rookie wage scale a little bit. The fifth-year option is killing, to me, uh, the leverage of players because it used to be the last year your contract under the old system was so out of whack that there's no way that a player could play under it. So the team would do the deal early, and the player had him at their mercy. Or if you let, had the guy play out, you couldn't franchise him like in Dominican Soon. You hit the open market and got some deal which reshaped the market in ways nobody really saw coming. That's how Calvin Johnson got the deal he got, because he wanted to get to franchise him. His franchise number was so huge, he was at your mercy. That doesn't happen anymore. So, yeah, I think you have to modify that. Now, in terms of contractually, there's one other thing they really should focus on. I don't think they would. There's an archaic provision in the CBA where you have to fund any future skill and injury guarantees and put that money into escrow. That's, to me, that's one of the reasons you don't have fully guaranteed contracts in mass. Because what owner wants to tie up money in escrow that he could use for other purposes? These are smart, rich people, so they're not, they, don't know, they don't have an inclination to do that. Get rid of the funding requirement because it was put in a long time ago when you had to worry about whether a team was going to make payroll or whether they could afford um, to keep a team afloat. That's not the case in the NFL, uh, by and large, anymore. The only team you could even potentially raise that has been whether Mark Davis has had enough cash. And I've always been skeptical that that was even a real consideration. I don't think the union's going to really um, pursue that. Now, in terms of what you could see creatively in, in contracts, one thing that a lot of people have been trying to push for and advocate is tying salaries to a percentage of the cap. Yeah. Is since teams hate establishing a new precedent, that's a tough one. Uh, Aaron Rodgers needed to die on that hill in 2013 when he was younger. 
not last year. I know Russell Wilson tried it and failed this year. Um, one thing you could try to get instead of um, is something that when I first got started, uh, I was working with um, Eric Allen's agent, and our boss was under Armada, who represented uh, Shaq, Hakeem, and Ronnie Lott. And he suggested to uh, my immediate uh, boss, um, who was Eric's agent, to get one of these NBA-type clauses in the contract where there's an adjustment um, where you always have to be either the third, fifth, or highest-paid guy at your position. Ultimately, mm. it was agreed upon that Eric was the average of the third highest paid cornerback if he hit certain uh, performance yeah. milestones, which he did. This was pre-salary a of, cap. A lot of college football coaches have that as well, where they have to be the top paid coach in their conference. Right, or exactly, exactly. Yeah. And where, where Leonard got that from was David Robinson and Patrick Ewing had that in their contracts. And it's something he was, he tried to get in a, in a Hakeem extension. I was helping him on, but ultimately couldn't get. So he made that suggestion. I would like to see somebody try to go that route. I don't think anyone has. I've never heard of it publicly being something which gets leaked or has been leaked is uh, an agent pursuing that. So I'd like to see someone go from that standpoint. Um, I think you got a better shot at that than tying it to a percentage of the cap. All right. Maze, anything else? That's all I got. Joel, thank you so much for doing this. I can't even tell you how much smarter I am just about every single day reading what you write and seeing what yeah. happens on your Twitter feed. So thank I, you very I, I much. Will say, I will say I'm going to try that uh, That I have to be the highest paid sports writer thing. I'm going to try that in my next <laughs> deal. Right. It's a great I get 5% more than Schefter every time he re-ups. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I try to do is just whatever wisdom or knowledge I have, I try to impart it. Uh, to people but what my big pet peeve is when people value contracts and conflate or what is the new money with what was left on the contract because every negotiation yeah. i ever did was over the new money so if you want to get blocked on twitter start talking to me about carson wentz's deal being 25.8 million as an average <laughs> opposed to the new money being 32 i i I've gotten to the point. I don't argue with those people who try to tell me how a contract is valued. I just block you automatically. <laughs> it's probably the right move. You, you come with the salary cap king. You best not miss. Joel, <laughs> thank you so much. Exactly. Thanks, Thanks for having me, guys. Talk to you soon. All right, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to the Ringer NFL show on the Ringer Podcast Network. Great news. We have a set schedule now here for the offseason. We're going to be coming to you weekly with our big picture shows until further notice. So please check back next week. We have yet to decide the topic. I would tell you now if I wasn't a little bit disorganized, but we'll be back next week either way. So as always, thanks for listening to the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network.